this is our wrap-up episode. We haven't done this before, but we heard some amazing cases this season, season four, and we thought we should do kind of a debrief. And this is what any good clinical ethicist would do um, with their ethics committee. They'd say, you know, we've had a lot of cases recently. We should sit down and really talk through them and see if we can find some commonalities, see if there's a policy we need to write, education we need to do. Is this something that you often do with your ethics committee? Yeah, so there are certain cases that we have to review um, kind of by policy. So policy requires a, an after-the-fact review by the entire ethics committee. Uh, one of the hospitals that I work with, that's their approach. But you're right, when there have been a number of cases, particularly if they're similar themes or if they're from the same unit or service line. Mm -hmm. So if we get all of a sudden a, a rash of cases from the neonatal ICU, for example, I, I think a good clinical ethics service would look at that and say, maybe there's an opportunity for some education. Maybe there's a policy that isn't working the way that we ought to, th that we think it should. So uh, doing a retrospective review periodically, I think is really good practice for clinical ethicists. Yeah. So we're going to pretend that, you know, all these cases kind of came from our same place and uh -huh. um, you and I independently came up with some sort of commonalities or themes that emerged from a lot of the stories that we heard. And so right. we're going to compare and contrast our notes. All right. I'm excited to see what uh, your list is. Yeah, ditto. So, <laughs> did you rank them? Are they in rank order or are they just observations? I did rank them because oh, I'm, right. I'm uh, you know, a good student. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So let's start with uh, our number three takeaway. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to go up the list. Go, yeah. Go okay. in reverse order. So what's your, what's your third takeaway? Okay. Third takeaway. A lot of the cases that we heard brought up advanced directives. So did they have them and they weren't working or should they have had them and would that have helped the case? Good. Yes. Advanced directives are like we talked about in one of the episodes. I can't remember exactly which one, but advanced directives have two parts, right? They have the part where you're actually naming somebody to make decisions for you. And then the second part is what wishes you have or preferences mm -hmm. so that was actually my number three as well oh, my number three was careful who you want to make decisions for you yes and careful which form you use right like so you know sometimes it was they had this kind of interesting alternative advanced directive that we don't typically see in the hospital um so you know be careful about the form that you're using and be careful of course about the person that you're choosing make sure that they understand what you want and can actually fulfill their obligation to carry out your wishes. Right. I think it's a little bit counterintuitive sometimes because usually the person we want to make decisions is the person who's closest to us, mm -hmm. right? The person, maybe our spouse or um, your parent for, for some situations. But in those times when really difficult decisions need to be made. The people who care about us the most often are going to be the ones experiencing the emotion the most intensely. Um, and so sometimes it's a good practice or, or uh, a good idea to think about maybe it's not the person who is closest to me that I should ask to make decisions in this you know potentially terrible situation, but maybe it's actually uh, somebody else who I, I can trust to actually carry out my wishes. So just a thought. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. So not it might not be the person. It kind of depends on who that person is, right? So if the person closest to you would be terribly distraught if anything were to happen to you and it would make them like not a great decision maker or it would feel like a burden to them, that might not mm -hmm. be the person that you want. Maybe you relieve that burden by giving it to somebody else. But you also might have somebody in your life who would be very upset. Like it would create more turmoil for them if you chose somebody besides them. So that's just right. something to talk through with that person. Yeah. And I think something that came up a number of times throughout this season was the importance of having these conversations mm -hmm. with with the people who are actually going to be making the decisions. So writing things down and, and having a list is a really good idea, but having the conversation I think is even more important. Yeah. I think we both agreed in one of the episodes that uh, that the person that you choose is actually more important than the things that you write down. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that was number three. What's number two on our countdown for you? Okay. Um, my number two was, do we trust the surrogate? And this is not unrelated, but it came up in a bunch of these cases that the clinical ethicist wasn't sure whether they could trust that the surrogate was making either the decision that the patient would have made or just a good decision at all. So who do That's we, a good one. who do we trust? Yeah. Yeah. That, that brings up the question also, like, this is something that we've talked about, kind of not maybe necessarily on the podcast, but what type of evidence is sufficient? So if somebody is saying, I am this patient's spouse, do we just believe them? Do we believe them unless there's a red flag? Do we make them prove it? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, those types of questions come up, like what is the 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 amount of evidence and the quality of evidence that we that we rely upon trust the surrogate or not trust the surrogate right so this came up in my podcast it came up in the dirksen podcast it actually came up in your podcast tyler the turnbull podcast yeah the gidry grimes podcast and the um huberman podcast you know there there was reason to suspect that that surrogate who was making decisions on behalf of the patient might not be trustworthy um, either because they weren't who they said they were, because they didn't seem to be following what they we thought as a clinical team the patient would have wanted, or there was just something else going on that was sort of a conflict of interest with with that person. Mm. And I don't know that this comes up a ton in my practice as a clinical ethicist, uh, thankfully, because we really rely on surrogates to make decisions to help us sort of understand the patient. But it did come up in... So when people talk about the cases that haunt them, not being able to rely on the surrogate to make good decisions seems to be a theme that really troubles people. Yeah, it was a common theme because like you said, so much of what we do as clinical ethicists is try to operationalize or uh, effectuate the wishes of other people. Sometimes it's the patient, sometimes it's the surrogate. And if we have doubts about whether that preference or that wish is valid or legitimate or reflects what the patient would have wanted, it kind of undermines the whole process that we go through, totally. that we try to go through. Yeah. So what was your number two? All right. My number two um, was also about advanced directives, uh, but that advanced directives need to be completed, but completed very carefully and with a grain of salt. Okay. <laughs> so um, so uh, there are a couple of times we, we talked about advanced directives or preferences being documented, 
But sometimes those documented wishes aren't exactly applicable. Sometimes they're irrelevant. Sometimes, like you said a second ago, uh, we're uncertain about whether they actually reflect uh, the the patient's wishes or not. You know, in the one of the more recent episodes, we talked about a, an advanced directive that was completed in a very suspicious way and and had all kinds of red flags. So, um, advanced directives are important, but they are not often. They are not the the end of the conversation. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, drum roll, please. Number drum roll. one. <laughs> Cameron, <laughs> add in a drum roll. <laughs> yes. All right, Devin, what's the number one takeaway from season number four? Okay. My number one, which happened, it was a theme in nearly every one of the podcasts, was a concern that the patient was going to die before their time. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. And this was, um, I was trying to think back, I think it was in almost everyone, but the Dirksen, um, Sarkozy, the Makowitz, my podcast, um, Leahy, Huberman, nearly all of them, there was this case, and yours too, that mm-hmm. um, we were concerned that a decision was being made that would cut a life short. And this struck me because if you were to ask me, what is the most common kind of case you get in clinical ethics, I would say... Um, it's the case in which the family or the surrogate really wants more aggressive end-of-life treatment and the clinical team is saying, no, we think this is only prolonging death and can we say no to the to the surrogates or the family members? That's the majority of the cases that I've um, been involved in, this kind of question of futility or non-beneficial treatment. And I think the second most common might be something more like the surrogate or the patient wants to end treatment and that would lead to their death, and that makes the clinical team uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. But it it seems like it must make us even more uncomfortable than the first kind of case because it it was such a common theme. Nearly all of the podcasts, it was the clinical ethicist questioning whether we were ending treatment too soon for the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it. I think that kind of speaks to the discomfort, or it, all of medicine is geared towards healing and curing and fixing. For the most part, right? Mm-hmm. And when we shift away from that being the primary goal to something like quality of life, regardless of quantity of life, right? Mm-hmm. So, like a, a palliative care approach, it's really, um, I don't know if disorienting is the right word, but it, it's challenging for healthcare providers. So, mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that was definitely a common theme. Uh, mine is not dissimilar, I guess. The number one takeaway for me from this season was that suffering in the healthcare system is rampant, mm. is ubiquitous. Um, our patients suffer. Sometimes uh, it's unavoidable, but sometimes it's needless. Uh, I think that our healthcare providers, uh, particularly over the last several years uh, during the pandemic and uh, all of the things that they've seen and gone through, there's a lot of suffering on the provider side as well. And then also the people who do this work, clinical ethicists, we get brought into really, really challenging cases, sometimes without a lot of warning or a lot of uh, ability to prep or to do kind of background uh, research or investigation about what's going on. Sometimes we don't know any of the parties involved and we get plopped into these situations that are as emotionally and sometimes politically, sometimes legally complicated as, as anybody can imagine in healthcare. 
and it takes a toll on the ethicist, mm -hmm. which is something that I don't think that we talk about enough in clinical ethics. Like, what is the burden of doing this work? Mm -hmm. And how do we as clinical ethicists deal with uh, the emotional and, and psychological trauma that we get inflicted upon by the nature of our role? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to me like most people have no practice. I mean, a lot of the people we interviewed did have ways in which they um, talked about this with others, that they learned to sort of deal with those feelings. But there is not a systematic practice of dealing with that, that anyone has taught me anyway. So I right. think it's an important topic that we're definitely not covering. And it's, I don't think was taught to us in our program, or maybe during your fellowship, you got tips on this, but I don't ever remember getting tips on how to handle the emotional burden of making some of the most important decisions that the mm -hmm. care team is going to make. Yeah. I, I, still feel like inadequate in in the ways in which i process or deal with or deal with these types of emotional burden of it mm -hmm. i think that we so so my 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 partner here at at the medical school he's a psychiatrist and we we talk often about the difference in the training of him being a psychiatrist and me with my background uh, one thing that he told me, and I think that this is probably true of most programs, I don't know that, but during your psychiatric residency program, so the four years that you are training to become a psychiatrist, you have to see a therapist, your own uh, your mm -hmm. own therapist mm -hmm. um, regularly. I don't know if it's weekly or every other week or whatever, uh, as a, not just a good practice to get into and, and part of the training program, but also like as a way to deal with those um you know challenging situations that, that you have to come into in doing this work so that yeah. might be a good idea for clinical ethicists we all need a therapist <laughs> well probably all need a therapist and then some sort of systematic way of thinking through these cases this is this was a common practice in chaplaincy too is that mm. you know when you're doing your training you're meeting with all the other trainees and your supervisor uh, twice a week at least to debrief your hardest cases and sometimes mm. that's like role playing them out. Sometimes it's talking about them. Sometimes it's writing them up. But the point of that is to sort of rehash it in front of your peers and have them sort of give you feedback on how you did, but also how you're processing it. So it was mm -hmm. it's a super important part of chaplaincy because like clinical ethicists, chaplains deal with some really tough things, some tough emotions. Mm. Um, but so this needs to be a part like let's let's call up all the fellowship directors. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, who do this training and and think with them about how this could be done better. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. It's something that uh, is really important for the longevity of a career in mm -hmm. clinical ethics. So I think so. Yes, call to action for fellow clinical <laughs> ethicists right. to, to explore this idea. Well, I think it was an amazing season. I cried a lot. Um, <laughs> these cases were tough, um, but yeah. I think also really helpful to hear how other people struggle and the kinds of cases that they're running into. Hopefully it was interesting to the listeners. We have interesting plans for season five, so stay tuned mm -hmm. for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, 
Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Thank you.